0: Time for security now. Steve Gibson is here with a revelation that will chill you to the bone if you truly understand it. We'll talk about Bitcoin and the Telnet apocalypse. It's here now. Details next on Security Now. Netcasts you love
1: from people you trust.
0: This, this is Twit. twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 396, recorded March 20th, 2013. Telnet Apocalypse. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy, your security and all that jazz, and boy. There's never been a better time for the explainer in chief, Steve Gibson, than right now. Hello, Steve.
1: We've been busy lately, Leo. and uh, Seems like the hackers are kind of like uh, gaining on us. Well, and we've got some news this week that is very worrisome. I haven't seen anyone else pick up on this aspect of it, but it's perfect for our listeners to understand. And this involves something known as what was a transient botnet known as the Karna botnet, which was the creation of one guy, one arguable sort of gray area researcher i mean he he was he he acted responsibly but unfortunately the disclosure of what he found really is worrisome and we'll talk about that we we had planned also to carry the second half of the questions from last week's q and a over to this week but there's just no way we're going to have time Um, So those I'm I'm moving those five that we didn't get to last week to next week's Q&A because we have so much to discuss that uh, news of the week. And I wanted to also talk about the the operation and technology of distributed hash tables. The topic came up when we were discussing two weeks ago the way Tor offers services and the way people look up the locations of the services is in a distributed secure anonymous fashion which distributed hash tables allow and in the research uh, sort of the background for this i discovered among other things for example that that's the way amazon stores all of its data it's not using sql so called you know sql complex relational databases cuz that's overkill for what for what amazon needs what they want is high availability, um, very fast, very robust, very scalable database technology. And all they need to do is look up data associated with, with, with short strings or keys. And they're actually using distributed hash tables throughout all of Amazon's websites and offerings as the way of like of the database technology they've deployed. So it's not just for, you know, places where you want a decentralized database. Another perfect example is BitTorrent. BitTorrent is a uses distributed hash tables so that there's no place like there used to be with Napster where it could be, you know, subject to subpoena and and shutdown. So that's our main topic today. Uh, but I, I thought we'd have time for more. But boy, with all of the really amazing news that we have to cover, I think we'll have a very full and fun, interesting podcast.
0: Well, may I also wish you a happy vernal equinox today? <laughs> and this isn't this the first day of spring? The first day of spring. And uh, yeah. and all over the world. This is from Boston Globe's big picture. These are pictures of spring all over the globe. Uh, this is the day when this day and night are equal. There are two of these a year. And uh there's Stonehenge, the sun rising between the uh, lintels. <laughs> uh to uh mark the uh the vernal equinox. So cool. happy spring. It's raining here. We've got I guess Is that what I'm hearing? I kinda hear can something. Can you hear a little tippy the tap on the roof? Yeah, we have a metal yeah. roof. Or something. Yeah, that's neat. I don't know what it's not metal, it's that's neat. It's some sort of composite. I normally
1: don't hear anything like static coming from your end. Yeah, I it hear sounds like static is,
0: <laughs> so, That's yeah. that's the rain, yeah.
1: It's pretty though. Cool. Well, um, our big – one of the the crazy events of the week occurred just after last week's podcast, which was last Wednesday the 13th. 13th. This occurred to a friend of the podcast, uh, Brian Krebs, on the following day on Thursday. He was on a couple of weeks ago, in fact. Yep. Our show. Um, He was subjected to both a virtual and a – Real world attack of sorts. Um, we're all familiar with the term DDoSed, uh, and his site was came under attack uh, from a purchased denial of service attack by a, a a distributed botnet, which offers its DDoSing services for hire. But in the physical world, he was swatted, which is the name you know my swat of course is the acronym for special weapons and tactics um a a hacker who brian whose identity brian believes he knows spoofed a not an emergency 911 call from brian's phone i think his cell phone but i don't remember yeah, it for said sure. cell phone that's by okay. the way
0: that's very easy to do that's not a sophisticated right. hack
1: and and so brian was like I think he was removing some masking tape from his door jam where he'd been painting or something. I don't remember. He was expecting house guests.
0: He was going to have a dinner party and he was tidying up. And yeah, there was something on his door jam. He bends down to pick it up, looks up. And lo and behold, there are guns (laughs) trained on him. Holy cow. (laughs) Scary. A bunch
1: of police cars all positioned out in front. Guns leveled at him. They told him to turn around and walk slowly backwards towards them and he was handcuffed and then walked away from the house up the street Mm. meanwhile of course he was trying to explain to people that this there was nothing amiss whatsoever in his home and that this was a, a a false alarm which he had even had the foresight i think it was about six months before he wrote a letter to his local police department warning him that this sort of thing might be happening. Well, the standard beat cops just blew all that off. But finally, someone who had the mannerisms and dress of a supervisor came up and said to Brian, um are you the guy who wrote us the letter <laughs> yeah. about six months ago yeah, and told us stuff. this might happen? Yeah. And Brad said, yeah, that's me. And it's, so the, it's really
0: this- an easy thing, and it's happened on the West Coast with movie stars. And, uh, you know, part one is it's not hard to figure out where somebody lives because that's all public record, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. in the old days, you had to go to the courthouse in that local you know area, the county courthouse, to get that information, but... Uh, there are a number of websites that have sent people around physically to do that and have put it online. So it's not so hard to find out those house home sales records. And, uh, you know, then, uh, unfortunately, uh, anybody can can uh, spoof these 911 calls. They told the SWAT team, he said, this is Brian Krebs. My wife has been shot by Russian gangsters. Oh, and uh and so of course they're going to respond the way they did i don't think they mistreated him in any way but it's still terrifying no
1: no and in fact the moment the supervisor realized that this was extremely likely from well both from brian's mannerisms the fact that he wasn't distraught and upset and the fact that he he was the guy that had written a, a letter 6 months before the the uh, the supervisor you know spoke something into his radio and all the guns yeah. came down but you and-
0: understand they have there's no that's, this how is can the they difficulty. Yes, how can they not take it seriously? Yes, and it serious. you, believe me, the next time Russian gangsters break into Brian Krebs' house, he'll want them to do this. And that's the problem is I don't know what the easy answer is to this. We assume in society a certain amount of civilized behavior and this very uncivilized behavior, really childish behavior. Mostly it is children or people with childish mentalities who do this. Um, we're not really set up to handle it in any way. They did well, call his – they called his uh, phone, his home phone, and he just – he heard it ring, but well, he didn't that's respond.
1: Right, yeah, right, right. They, they called a couple times. It it was uh, – I think they called a cell phone because he made a comment that he left it upstairs. Yeah. Had he answered, didn't maybe
0: have, that would have diffused the whole thing.
1: Yes, because he would have said, oh, no, that's fine. And you remember, and and I'm the guy who wrote the letter six months ago right. telling you this might happen. Right. But you're right. There was no answer several times. So that – they thought, okay, well, they first – They'd still
0: send a couple of – Units over because maybe Just the Russian gangster would on. say, yeah, this is Brian Krebs. Everything OK <laughs> here. No problem. He's OK.
1: So, yeah. you know, it's it's uh, anyway uh, terrifying. Uh, Brian, Brian posted about that last week. He also has posted since some further investigation results. So anyone who wants more on this, uh Brian's site again is Krebs, K-R-E-B-S, Krebs on security dot And the most recent blogs, um, postings are, you know, the, the second most recent is about this, where he describes the events that transpired last Thursday. And then his most recent posting just recently was the result of him pursuing back through his various avenues who he thought it was that was responsible and the conclusions that he came to. So and there there, and there is more that we haven't talked about. So it's worth that anyone who's interested. uh, Wow, he's done a lot
0: of research and actually pretty convincingly has tracked down the kid. He's I think twenty, lives in Milford, Connecticut. Well-known kid, same kid who uh, hacked Matt Honan. Uh, I've actually had conversations with him on Twitter, Um, and uh, you know it's. But there's nothing much you can do about this. It's just uh, so scary, so scary. No. The, the so, scary thing is if something goes wrong. Now, if, for instance, you don't well, expect I, I, the, the swatting and you have a weapon and you think somebody's breaking your house and you pull the weapon, you're dead. Uh, yep. And it's kind of hard to take that back.
1: Yep. Um, and if you're someone with a very different temperament than right. Brian, right. where he would, he, when he was completely relaxed, he understood escalating is not what you do at a time yeah. like this. Yeah. But, But, you know, somebody else who, you know, reacts differently, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, tensions are high uh, as, on the, uh, the side of police. And
0: as Krebs points out, this it also is a great expense and misdirects emergency personnel that might be needed in another situation, a real emergency. Yeah. So all in all, it's um, it's really, uh, boy, I just don't know what you do. I mean, one thing we've got to fix is the spoofability of, of phone numbers. It's trivial. Yeah.
1: Right now. Yeah. So I mentioned a site, SSLLabs.com couple of weeks ago, ssllabs.com has a service free that allows you to put the domain of any server, any public web server into the site, and it will test that site's SSL and TLS secure security technology. I mentioned it relative to GRC, my site, because we used to get A D or a D minus, I don't remember, when I was running Windows 2000 because I was supporting older ciphers and because Windows 2000 was so old, I couldn't offer any newer, stronger ones. It was one of the real benefits for GRC especially of moving up to Windows 2008 R2, which I'm going to discuss a little bit more next week because it's one of the questions we didn't get to last week, which we will get to next week, was about that from some guy who administers, administrates a lot of uh, Server 2000 installations. But this prompted a bunch of our listeners, I probably have no idea how many, to put sites that they are interested in into SSL, Labs.com. I know that many put GRC in because I saw in my logs all of the inbound tests from SSL Labs coming to GRC as, as people ran the test themselves. One listener was very worried because he put the address of his bank, which is TD Canada Trust. Um, and this was easywebsoc.td.com into SSL Labs and received a grade for his bank's SSL security of F. It got an F. You can get an E, by the way, <laughs> which is somewhere between D and F. Um, this, this got his bank an F. And he, so he wrote saying, oh, my God, should I worry? So I wanted to create a little bit of context for this a little more context, I, I went back to sslabs.com, and Leo, if you go there, um, and uh, you you could use the link that's in my show notes if you wanted to, and that brings up the the test for this TD Canada Trust Bank. It, it summarizes all of its findings in four categories. Uh, the, the quality and strength of your certificate, that is the certificate that that secure server is offering the nature of the protocols that it supports that's a pretty big red f (laughs) It leaves. yeah you can understand why people might be a little concerned if their bank is getting an f boy uh the key exchange strength and the cipher suite strength so this td canada trust got a hundred on their certificate so it's a big green bar that goes all the way they got an A0 on protocol support and that earned them an instant F. They're using if SSL is, 2.0. Yes. Uh, and it's not that they don't offer more, but they offer it. They need to turn and this so, off. Correct. Um, and so that's what did it to them. That SSL version 2.0 earned them an instant F. There's and no they're, way to so they're get vulnerable better. to the
0: beast is the problem.
1: Well, actually, no. That's a different problem. Oh. SS, SSL 2.0 is just it's no bad. longer recommendable. <laughs> right, right. And remember that from from our discussions about the way the handshake goes, the client, which is in this case a user, their platform, their Windows, their Android, their iOS, their Mac, whatever, Linux, Unix, their their platform sends to the server a list of ciphers and cipher suites that they understand so it's like here's here's a menu a bunch of things that that we understand so it's up to the server then to choose what it wants and and so the server looks at its list and compares it the, the the list of things it knows about the different ways to securely interact in detail and finds the like arguably the, the best one, whatever that means. And we'll talk about that in a second because that's where beast comes in, finds the best one that it chooses from among what the client has said it understands. Now, what this means is that if you had a man in the middle The man in the middle could intercept the client's initial outgoing connection and and hold on to it for a second, then turn around and only offer SSL version 2.0 to the server. Now, my server will say, sorry, if all you've got is SSL 2.0, we can't talk. And so... A well, a contemporary, well configured web server today, like my Bank will, of America, whoops, a plus. Oh, 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 yay, yay, good, Whew, yes.
0: I had, to, I had to check it after that.
1: <laughs> a well configured server will not agree to accept a version 2.0 SSL connection. It just says, "Sorry, if that's all you got, we can't talk." Unfortunately, TD Canada Trust does accept it. So so it's this man-in-the-middle vulnerability. It's the idea that somebody in the middle could could downgrade the security the client is actually offering to a level that is so insecure that that then there are other exploits which can be used against it. So chase, that's what by the way, an f
0: chase chase.com c. Yeah. yeah. Key, key exchange was red. Cipher strength was yellow, so yeah, uh, yeah.
1: So, so the other things that are, are happening is that um, in this protocol, is fun. I like running this. it, I know, it this is. is awesome. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they remember that the problem with Beast, the B E A S T, the browser, whatever it was that it stands for, but it, it's our it's our guys that were on the beach. Uh, they realized that. Any cipher block chaining protocol where where the the residual from the end of the of one block is fed into the beginning of the next, and that is true in up up to TLS 1.1. So both SSL 2.0, which is already bad for different reasons, but also SSL version 3.0 and TLS version 1.0, which is essentially the same as SSL version 3.0, they all have their cipher block chaining protocols um, chaining across the the blocks that are being sent, that is, across packets of blocks. And it's that inter-packet chain that, that creates a vulnerability which can be exploited by this beast attack. So what... What what's happened again is that when, when a serv- when a client offers a bunch of protocols, the traditional wisdom was, oh, cipher block chaining and fancy ciphers like AES two fifty six, for example, those are gonna be better than RC4, because RC4 is just a is a pseudo-random stream generator. It doesn't use chaining. And so, so normally servers put their CBC-based fancy new ciphers first. And so that's the other thing that SSL Labs tests is essentially it, it gives them, it gives the server different sort of, it teases them with different sets of protocols to see which ones the, the server chooses. And unfortunately, again, this TD Canada Trust has its CBC ciphers taking priority over the older RC4-based cipher. And once again, it loses points because that means it's vulnerable to the beast attack because it will happily use this interlocking packet uh, weakened cipher protocol rather than not. And lastly, under the cipher strength category, it only got a 60 out of a hundred because it's still supporting the weakest cipher key lengths ever it's got a whole bunch of 40-bit key lengths and some 56-bit key lengths and those are just no longer strong enough you just can't you know we were talking the other day about the 64-bit key which um i can't remember who it was uh, it was a service that was uh, saying that, oh, well, because of export restrictions, we're just using a fifty, a sixty-four bit key, and not anything higher. Evernote, but, but yeah, that's right. Evernote, yeah. but here this is forty and fifty-six bits. So there's just no reason to offer these weaker ciphers. No. Um, and <laughs> the server identifies itself as IBM HTTP server. <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's deployed by. Uh, AkamaiTechnologies.com. Oh, Akamai. huh. So this is a you know a major cloud deployment right. IBM server that is just sort of default configured, and this is what you get if you just install the software and don't do any tweaking. Ah, I that's it. Of course. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It just gives you everything.
0: Here's everything. But you got to think and a unfortunately- bank has some pretty high qualified hide heavy duty experts, security. Well, I think guys. what they've
1: done is they've they've subbed this out. Uh, they've said, okay, you know, we know about charging people. Right, we right. don't know we don't know about security. Mm. And Akamai says, Oh, I bet you they've got gold seals and all kinds of junk right. all over their website right. talking about how wonderful their security is. But it's not. It's just unfortunately, uh, not obviously here. You know, they got an F at the moment. So I mean, no, this is not gonna hurt. TD Canada Trust, I mean, in terms of like their reputation, because only people who listen to this podcast (laughs) know about, you know, the details of the way they're connected. But if a bad guy was really, really intent on exploiting their customers, um, it's much more possible to do so with a connection of, of this low grade than not. So anyway, that's what that's all about. And who knows who to blame? I mean, I, I wouldn't be rushed to
0: blame Akamai. It may be yeah. that when you set up your server at Akamai or uh, you have check boxes, and uh, whoever, you know, was doing TD Ameritrade said, you know, we should make it as flexible as possible. Let's make sure we support everything and checked all the box. You know, I, who knows how this happened? I wouldn't blame yep. anybody. Uh, yep. A surprisingly so- large number of banks are are pretty good, though. Wells Fargo, straight A's. Um, nice. Uh, yeah. Chase, kind of some middle of the road stuff, um, B of A's. So just you know, this is probably a worthwhile thing for people to run. SFla- SSL Labs dot com. They have a site test right there.
1: Quite yeah, flawless. and if you find out that your bank is is rated low, complain. By all means, send a note. Yeah, complain. Yeah. Send a note to yeah. to some web admin somewhere and say, hey, check this out. How yeah. you know? Are yeah. you sleeping well at night? Yeah, yeah. Um, just a note that Windows 7 Service Pack 1 has finally moved from install it if you want to we're going to give it to you without you without you asking for it mode. That happened also with Patch Tuesday last week, um, but I didn't see it in time to mention it. Um, also at the same time, and this is relevant for anybody doing new installations of either Windows 7 or Server 2008, Microsoft also released a, and this is is appearing under Windows Update under optional, a complete comprehensive roll-up of all post-Service Pack 1 security patches since Service Pack 1. And having just installed a bunch of Server 2Ks, and also, I mean, 2K8s, and also a bunch of Windows 7 boxes. I mean, it is. Th- this is a great benefit to have this. the The alternative is, you know, you install Windows 7, then you install Service Pack One, which has been a- available for quite a while. But then you do, okay, give me all the other security patches, and there's like 64 of them. Um, and you know, they install one by one. Each one takes a snapshot of all of the system's configuration at the time it was installed and and archives everything that it's replacing. So the point is you end up with this massive blob of of like history which has been stored on your system. It just annoys me to see like because Microsoft allows you to uninstall any of these things. You can roll them back if you need to. And so because you're installing individual update events it's archiving all the things it's changing every single time many of them are completely redundant so i'm really excited and pleased i wish this had come out two months ago (laughs) but still it's better to have it now than not so it's under optional updates and anybody there's really no need to do it if your system has already been kept up to date because it'll you probably run it and it'll say well there's nothing for me to do but anybody installing and setting up a new Windows 7 system or a new Server 2008 R2 which is essentially the server version of the same Windows 7 I, uh, um, operating system definitely wants to know about this so you would install Windows 7 presumably then Service Pack One it's probably a prerequisite and then immediately install this rollup and you're saved from like this individual. Uh, annoying incremental update across the board. Love those roll-ups. Yes, they are. And, you know, no one was really expecting this because, you know, Microsoft has moved on famously or infamously to Windows 8 and... You know, I just, oh, my goodness. How what? are you feeling about that, mm. by the way? Yeah. Well,
0: A, I think it's safe to say there will not be a service pack, two for Windows 7. So
1: No, and that, <laughs> that was the point it. I was making, was that nobody expected. <laughs> even nobody expected one. E- even, well, we had one a long time well, We had time one, ago. or the roll-up,
0: that's right. We talked about this on yes. Windows Weekly. They're not calling it a service pack, but it is. It's a roll-up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I You so, know, Windows yeah. 8, I have such mixed feelings. You know, under the hood, I think it's widely agreed that it is better. Uh, in a great many respects. Um, certainly huh. file copy works better. Uh, a lot of the things uh, work better. It's faster. Um, you know, security, well, we'll see. But um, Some
1: guy on TV is saying that his mother finds it very intuitive, but I just, you know, I'm oh, not giving I, I
0: don't I, find it. I think the real problem, you know, <laughs> as, as I see it, is it's really two different operating systems. Um, this, this, it, you know, they say, well, let's just, we've replaced the start menu with a start screen. No, really, you've replaced... It's more than just a start screen. It is, a, it is Metro, and there are Metro apps, and there are desktop apps, and uh, it's a little confusing. There's two versions of Internet Explorer with different capabilities, and you're not always sure which is running. Wow. Um, so it's just it's it, things like that. Uh, I think they'll probably you know iron these wrinkles out, but uh, well, I'm not disrecommending it. it. I just they stumbled.
1: Tough. They stumbled on something called Vista, <laughs> yeah. and then they came out with Windows 7. So, yeah. you know, maybe there will be a 9, and they will fix, you know, in doing 9, they will fix what they learn about 8. In which case, I'm pretty much st- staying with my every other OS Seven uh, seven's awfully good. I, I thought seven was the best version. of Windows Oh, Leo, I used. will be so happy with it. I'm I've been using it a lot more. Yeah. I'm very familiar with it. I set up a new seven machine here because its OS is a clone essentially of the Server two thousand eight R two that I'm running. You know, GRC servers, n- the newly set up servers on. And the more I look at it, the better I get to know it. The more impressed I am. I'm I'm very 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 impressed with Windows Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Still on XP because it does what I need, but, but I've got a 7 box next to me. I think
0: it's conceivable that you could make Windows 8 uh, run better uh, just by eliminating Metro. And there are ways, yeah. third-party ways to do that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I just to don't. revert it to something that yeah. looks like... Yeah. A, yeah. Um, get rid of that Metro stuff.
1: So yeah, something really confused people this week. Um Some researchers looked at an update that Cisco made to their iOS. Now, this is not iOS the way we always talk about it, meaning Apple's OS. This is capital I, capital O, capital S that well predates Apple and having anything called iOS. You know, I've got iOS running in my Cisco router here and and at the data center. Um, You know, Cisco is, of course, the major router and switch manufacturer from the old days. Um, iOS is their Internet operating system that they've always had on their devices. They have traditionally had a very strong password encryption, one-way, hash-based. It's got all the buzzwords. It's PBKDF password-based, key-driven, uh, what? Key derivation function. Uh, it runs a 1,000 iterations of MD5, of the MD5 hash with salt. So it's salted, it's got a good hash, and it runs it a 1,000 times. Everybody was happy. Then, curiously, some researchers looked at what they had done when they... When they with the, with some ballyhoo said, "Hey, we're coming up with a new password scheme. It does one iteration of SHA256 with no salt," and people are like, "Huh? What? Huh? Because th- I mean, it's with with current state of the art GPU accelerated hashing." SHA-256 was designed for speed. It loves to be run in parallel on GPU hardware, not to mention, you know, custom, uh, custom s- silicon just built for that. A- and nobody could understand what was going on. So these researchers brought this to Cisco's attention, also apparently through some responsible disclosure made this public. And Cisco has a response, a so-called Cisco security response, And I'll quote a little bit from it. They said, quote, the design called for using password-based key derivation function version 2, PBKDF2, as described in RFC 2898 section 5.1 with the following input values. Hash algorithm, SHA-256. Password, the user-provided plain text. Salt, 80 bits, generated by calling a cryptographically secure random number generator, and iteration count, 1,000. Then they said, due to an implementation issue, now there's this is the, you know, PR speak, at no point do they explain anything about it. They say, due to an implementation issue, the type 4 password algorithm does not use P-B-K-D-F-2 and does not use assault, but instead performs a single iteration of S-H-A-256 over the user-provided plain text password. This approach causes a type 4 password, which is the new one, to be less resilient to brute force attacks than a type 5 password of equivalent complexity. So they're saying, yeah, uh, we know. And uh, there it is.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: we know. So an <laughs> implementation issue. Now, I am not, our listeners know, I am not a conspiracy guy, but I don't get this. Yeah. I mean, I don't get how Cisco would apparently, deliberately, and knowingly... Weaken dramatically, weaken the the login strength of their router technology. I, I can't understand. I can't explain it. They did, and they got caught. Essentially, they didn't document it. It wasn't public. In fact, they documented it as as strong. And when the researchers looked, they said, "Ah, no, you, uh, this is what you said you did is not what you did." So, they had to know they're saying an implementation issue. You know, this is this is not even conceivably a bug. You you can't think of a bug. I mean, maybe if it had done ten instead of a thousand iterations, oh well, we we initialized our counter wrong. Well, no, there's no counter, and there's no salt. So, <laughs> just okay. I you know.
0: And iOS there- is used in all the in the commercial Cisco routers, right? What is Oh
1: my yes. Oh, I mean, like, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It's it's is the big iron router of the internet. Now there's since then there's competition. You know, there are other people also in the game. Cisco is still has a huge presence out on the internet, and every so often weaknesses are found in the current version of iOS, and so people upgrade. And so as they upgrade to newer versions of iOS they would be over time inheriting this weak this dramatically weakened password hash on routers that form essentially the backbone of the internet so uh, i don't know why <laughs> i don't know why it, but uh, they do although, yeah so um Interesting publication came out on the 18th, uh, so two days ago, Monday, from the U.S. Department of Treasury, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And if you just Google FIN-2013-G001, it's the first link that comes up. FIN-2013-G001. What you get is a PDF about Bitcoin. This is from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Yes. And the subject is dated March 13th, Monday. Application... Of the uh, they call it FinCEN Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, so application of regulations to persons administering, exchanging, or using virtual currencies. So you know they're calling for a crackdown. No, the good news is we're okay, and that's why this is amazing. There's been grumblings in Congress, uh, various random. Representatives and and senators have said, you know, we need to outlaw this crazy thing. Um, So they define a user of – well, so in in sort of a summary at the top, it says a user of virtual currency is not – it's bold italics, what they call an MSB, and they later define MSB as meaning money services business – which is subject to regulation. So they say a user of virtual currency is not an MSB under FinCEN's regulations and therefore is not subject to MSB registration, reporting, and record-keeping regulations. But somebody like Mt.
0: Gox, which is an exchange,
1: would be. Yes, yes. So they're saying... FinCEN's regulations define currency, also referred to as real currency, as, quote, the coin and paper money of the United States or of any other country that that I or one is designated as legal tender and that, two, circulates and, three, is customarily used and accepted as a medium of exchange in the country of issuance. In contrast to real currency— Virtual, in quotes, currency is a medium of exchange that operates like a currency in some environments, but does not have all the attributes of real currency. In particular, virtual currency does not have legal tender status in any jurisdiction. This guidance addresses convertible virtual currency. This type of virtual currency either has an equivalent value in real currency, or acts as a substitute for real currency. Um, and I'm skipping way down because I highlighted the things I wanted to share. Uh, where they're explaining, they say this guidance refers to the precipit. <laughs> this guidance refers to the participants in. ...generic virtual currency arrangements using the terms user, exchanger, and administrator. A user is a person that obtains virtual currency to purchase goods or services. An exchanger is a person engaged as a business in the exchange of virtual currency for real currency funds or other virtual currency... An administrator is a person engaged as a business in issuing, that is, putting into circulation, a virtual currency and who has the authority to redeem, to withdraw from circulation such virtual currency. And then, under users of virtual currency, they said a user who obtains convertible virtual currency and uses it to purchase. Real or virtual goods or services is not, again, bold italics an MSB under FinCEN's regulations. So that's more good news. Such activity, they say, in and of itself does not fit within the definition of, quote, money transmission services. So that's the key phrase that they look for and therefore is not subject to FinCEN's registration, reporting, and record-keeping regulations for MSBs. And then lastly, under e-currencies and e-precious metals, I didn't know what an e-precious metal was. I guess there's a market, you know, an electronic market for that. But they said the first type of activity involves electronic trading in e-currencies or e-precious metals. And they say in, in 2008, FinCEN issued guidance stating that as long as a broker or dealer in real currency or other commodities accepts and transmits funds solely for the purpose of effecting a bona fide purchase or sale of the real currency or other commodities for or with a customer, such person is not acting as a money transmitter under the regulations. Um, And actually, there's one last thing I did, I forgot. Uh, Under decentralized virtual currencies, so I mean, they're leaving no doubt here. They said, a final type of convertible virtual currency activity involves a decentralized convertible virtual currency, one that has no central repository and no single administrator, and two, that persons may obtain by their own computing or manufacturing effort. A person that creates units of this convertible virtual currency and uses it to purchase real or virtual goods and services is a user of the convertible virtual currency and not subject to regulation, as a money transmitter. So for we end users of Bitcoin, there is no longer any gray area at all. Um, the, the Department of Treasury, United States Department of Treasury, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network says, we're doing nothing wrong. I, I saw this and I also thought I'm, I I highlighted it. I'm going to send the PDF off to Mark Thompson, because as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he's, um, he 's experimenting with taking bitcoin in exchange for physical goods and and you know and for anyone who 's interested in or has bitcoins or wants to mine bitcoins and wonders about the the legalities of what they end up doing with them uh this makes it clear uh we 're okay
0: The only thing that bothers me a little bit about bitcoin is i'm i 'm just used to the notion that money is tied to uh, uh some sort of creation or physical you know doing something and well and and bitcoin's really just tied to how many cpus and gpus
1: you want to put in series (laughs) well okay we we of course we famously went off the gold standard when money was not told
0: to to gold
1: either is it yeah and and u.s currency is tied to nothing um i mean it is it's created out of thin air uh, well when- in, in initially but you know uh,
0: there's something going on for me to get money from an advertiser for instance we do something
1: well just agreement leo that's all it is well the You're- the actual value of it is
0: by agreement but it but it has a natural um a natural uh life because you know we agree what it's, something is worth you know it, by consensus i don't know it just there's something it feels like there's something missing in bitcoin that well, all you have to do is run a giant server farm and you can you can have
1: as much money as you want. That doesn't well, seem quite right to me. Yeah, um, it's it. Well, OK. I mean, that puts money into circulation, Bitcoinage into circulation. What's what? what is so elegant? And we again, we we really nailed this in our Bitcoin podcast. So anybody who hasn't yet heard the Bitcoin podcast, let me commend everyone to to go back and listen to it because you'll get this but it's so elegant is independent of how much effort people put into mining we already know today yesterday and tomorrow the rate at which new bitcoins come into the realm right so really those bitcoin computers are just like the
0: printers at the treasury they're just creating the currency, which we will then desert, determine the value of by trading.
1: And think just of it this way. Just as we do with dollars. Think of it this way. The more printers there are, the slower they run. Right.
0: So there's that's, that's naturally gated. Right. So, and there yes. will be a maximum so, amount of coinage reached in a few years, and that'll be that.
1: In 20, what is it, 2040 or I think 2040, it, it hits like... It stops. It it, it, it right. is it's already slowing down, and it's following a curve, and so the the rate at which new bitcoins are being minted is following a trajectory that is absolutely set. Right, nothing can change it. Right, and we there we will then end up with a crypto. I mean, the internet, the world will have a cryptographic, cryptographically strong, tradable. Virtual currency, and people will be buying and selling using it just like any other currency. And currently,
0: and a, a bitcoins were $63.98 on uh, Mt. Gox, Woo-hoo! and I've got 50 of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and, and but it's really yeah. an interest, uh, you know. I I think I think it's starting to gather critical mass. That's why it's of interest is uh, it's no longer just kind of an academic exercise. It seems to actually be gaining. You can buy pizza with it. God knows you can buy drugs with it.
1: My computer made three thousand dollars. It paid for itself and a few other machines. Right. Just like overnight. I woke up one morning and I I happened to check and there was 50 bitcoins like, hey, (laughs) I like this. Yeah. Now, you know, that was a long time ago. When there, you know, it was, and it is a statistical thing. So yeah. the chances today of that happening again are ridiculously vanishingly yeah, yeah, small.
0: Yeah. So, so but that's what, the other thing that bothers me. But it's, but, but all, all currencies are essentially, unless they're tied to something like gold, something of actual uh, value, they're all Ponzi schemes. They're all pyramid schemes. You just have to get in early.
1: Well, and the problem, the argument, the argument for releasing the dollar the US dollar from the gold standard, of course, was that our economy was inherently creating new wealth. Right. We we were inherent we were actually creating new value. We needed we needed money at the same to be brought into the economy at the same rate that actual new value was being created. And so rather than like ridiculously inflating the cost of gold, we disconnected it so that it's like we could we we could, right. you know money could track the actual creation of wealth, so it was pretty much at parity. So you don't this, need to
0: be a Bitcoin miner. At some point, bitcoins will be exchanged for service for goods and services in a free fashion, and then it's a true currency. The miners yeah. are merely putting the currency into production in a way that's frankly more rational than the Federal yes. Reserve Bank printing something.
1: Yes, you could argue that it is it is much it is less prone. To well, it, it is it absolutely tamper resistant. The technology doesn't allow tampering, and the they've crazy mining people, what they're doing is they're they're saying, okay, it's harder to make bitcoins today than it was, so I want, you know, I want to compete with the other crazy people. So so the idea is the, the more hashes the more hashes you can produce the more like remember that the way this works is you, it's the number of leading zero bits in the hash and so they the the requirement is is changing in the way that in, in the in the guesses you make to perform the hash of a of a chain in order to to find the result that gives you all zeros at the front of the hash. So, what what's happened is among the miners there has been this crazy escalation in performance. But the Bitcoin technology has 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 immediately reacted by making them work much harder than if this escalation hadn't happened. So so now, in fact now what what we're seeing is mining pools. It's so difficult to actually get physical bitcoins yourself that people pool their resources and if anyone in the pool scores a bitcoin it's that bitcoin is divvied up based on their relative com- the computing contribution to the pool so so i mean it's it's really been a very clever evolution over time and and, and as you say leo i i think it is ultimately i mean it's a phenomenon that the Treasury Department has just blessed. Essentially, wow. they've said that's we stunning. have no problem with this. Now there are other yes.
0: there are other uh, their competitors like Litecoin, uh, but that's okay. There can be other coins. Mm-hmm. Is what you know the, the, the are there, oh, First of all, Security Now two eighty seven. We explain the cryptographic standard that behind Bitcoin. So two, you go back to two eighty seven and listen to that one. And uh, there's a book which I am about to read. I haven't read it yet, but it's been on my Audible list for some time. Called The End of Money that talks about this whole notion. And money is just an agreed uh, thing. It's not, there's no inherent value. So I just, I find it fascinating and somewhat unsettling, but I guess as with many uh, modernisms, uh, we'll get used to it. (laughs) And I could see this becoming uh, an accepted standard, uh, not eliminating greenbacks or euros or anything else, but um, supplementing it.
1: Well, and
0: it I won't be able to pay my
1: taxes in Bitcoin I don't think in my lifetime, but um at some point because it's inherently virtual, um it may be less prone to manipulation than than physical physical currency which is sort of trying to straddle the virtual, you know, the the the, the virtual internet world. Right. We have so, seen
0: peaks and valleys in value, however.
1: Yeah, I mean, there have been, so it's been. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that it was at 63. That's great. You know, I'm <laughs> holding on to mine.
0: I would hold on. It's only going to get yeah. more valuable. I
1: think so. Well, because they're it's not going to make any more. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, what may have to happen, Leo, is that there will be, once it stops, then there will be only this much Bitcoin and it will have a value. Which, and by the way, eliminates see, inflation. Yes. I think, if I understand
0: yes. uh, how all this stuff works. It, yep. There's a big payments yep. conference on going on uh, right now. Um, and Al Gore apparently, according to the chat room today, said uh, he's all in favor of Bitcoin. He says, I'm a fan of Bitcoin at the payments conference today. <laughs> so, uh, wow. Wow. Just the technology is solid. We have just, just, just one wow. more
1: really interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you and we, introduced me to Bitcoin, and I'm going to keep uh, keep, uh, keep on you on this. Read that book. Read that I book. I am. Uh, have you I read bet, it? I bet you can, I'll bet you can. No, I haven't. Yeah. I can't wait. It's. It, I downloaded it months ago, and I just haven't gotten around to. Uh,
1: yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So you got a few
0: things going on. Uh, yeah. I keep reading. I do fiction, nonfiction, and I happen to pick a 48-hour book. <laughs> Actually, it was two books, so it's more like 100 hours. But I'm almost done.
1: Okay. Now I got bad
0: news. Oh, no.
1: Yeah. It's really bad. What?
0: Let me scroll down and see.
1: Uh, I created a bit.ly shortcut. Okay. The bit.ly shortcut is interscan. Okay. B-I-T dot L-Y slash interscan. I-N-T-E-R-S-C-A-N as short for internet scan. So bit.ly slash interscan.
0: Oh, dear. I'm reading it now. Uh, The Internet Census 2012 port scanning slash zero using insecure embedded devices from Karna Botnet.
1: Yeah. So here's the deal. Um, First of all, I'm going to quote some things from this paper. Everybody, I I, I tweeted the link, but also the bit.ly link is easy to find. Um, You're going to love the graphics. Click up up on the top. Click the graphics button button and look and and he's also got super high resolution versions of those thumbnails um, so here's what happens the guy he, he says we throughout this paper yeah. and at the end he confesses okay we actually means I Me. <laughs> because it just was impossible to like say I this I that and right. I this and right. so forth throughout right. the whole whole thing so so it's a guy and with any luck he kept it quiet and it's a good thing it's one guy because secrets are difficult to keep among people because you know then there's no accountability operating alone for six months he he poked his head out onto the internet wondering eh, how many telnet ports were open (laughs) any any telnet's the old
0: insecure way of getting terminal access to a server
1: Yes. We telnet don't nobody is, uses
0: it anymore. We all use uh, SSH.
1: Um Or maybe not. Okay. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> uh one point two million oh, dear. unique unprotected oh, devices exposing oh. Telnet. Oh dear on the net. Oh, dear. What he did was he scanned a small piece of the net and found a surprising number of Telnet ports. That's port 23. It's one of the ones that Shields Up has been checking for people from day one because it is so bad to have, uh, arguably it's worse than Windows file sharing, port 23. And no one blocks it. That is, ISPs, it's off their radar. They're not blocking it. Um, and as you said, you, you, it's like remote terminals. You, right. you you use a Telnet client, which are freely available. You simply connect to this port, and you get a prompt. Now, then he,
0: now you'd have to know a login
1: and password. And he tried either blank logins or admin admin or, <laughs> or root root. Yeah. He also tried admin huh. blank password and root blank password, oh, oh. and that got him in. To the majority oh. of these boxes.
0: Oh, so this map I'm that not- we're looking at is 460 million IP addresses, all of which respond to, to uh, them. Well, these are ping requests. Okay. I don't care about pings.
1: I know. Leo, He wrote, he wrote a bot, which he then carefully uploaded into... Of an initial set of these, which then scanned for others, Aye. and they sent themselves there. Aye. He wrote a worm. This essentially, this
0: guy should be. I hope he's being careful because this is the kind of thing people go to jail for.
1: Un- oh, un- Leo, malicious or here's, not. Here's the problem. Now everyone knows. Yeah. This. I mean, this is this is why this is the worst news I've had this year. Um, well, but who? But he, what are these servers? They're probably old machines in the closet and stuff. I mean, what it are they? Doesn't matter. They can launch DOS attacks. Oh, they can be used. They can. De- they, they, they are. They are Linux machines. Oh, he interesting. wrote. He, he he. So he says we used a strict set of rules to identify the target devices' CPU and RAM to ensure our binary. Was only deployed to systems where it was known to work. So this
0: is four hundred twenty. This map I'm going to show you from the paper. Mil- four
1: hundred twenty thousand botnet devices. These are all yes. botnets. These, They're installed. Well, these are installed. These are no. These are host. These are available host machines with telnet exposed that will accept a remote <laughs> load of code. He. This guy is a good guy. He he wrote his system so that he, he was very careful not to crash anyone's machine. They they expire and remove themselves. They they. I mean, I, I really yeah, but want. But he's, he's clearly list- he's,
0: he's he's in trouble. He's broken the law to do this.
1: Oh my God! It's why I hope he, he's, he, he's, he's. It's completely anonymous. Yeah. He posted this stuff up on on Bitbucket. Oh okay. Um, he did he did he has a pgp signature only to prevent anyone else from claiming that they did this But we don't did, know
0: who he is.
1: We will hopefully for his sake never know. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. The problem is all the Everybody bad guys it
0: know. It's in fact yes. I could write a script to do this in minutes.
1: Oh my god. This is Leo, easy. And by a, the way if you look
0: at the map, the heat map, it's population centers. It it, it you could if you overlaid this with a map of where the populations are in the world,
1: it would look just like this. He said, So he said, we also excluded all smaller groups of devices since we did not want to interfere with industrial controls. Wow. He found open, accessible him. industrial control systems oh, yeah. or mission critical hardware in any way. He found that too. So the bad guys are going to. He said, Our binary ran on approximately 420,000 devices. These are only about 25% of all unprotected devices found. Okay, 420,000 was 25%, meaning that it was 1.3 million potential targets from which he carefully selected a subset because that's all he needed. Not everyone is going to be that thoughtful and careful. He said, um, there are hundreds of thousands of devices that do not have a real shell, so we could not upload or run a binary. 100,000 MIPS 4K CE machines that are mostly too small. Now, that's probably Cisco routers because they, they use MIPS uh, or PowerPCs. I can't remember now. but So, small machines... And not capable enough for our purposes, as well as many unidentified configuration interfaces for random hardware. We were able to use ifconfig. I mean, you get a full Linux prompt. You're sitting there at somebody else's Linux machine, and you have access to their LAN also. That's
0: really not as bad as the fact that these uh, default passwords still work. I know. So, so what it really is is somebody installed Linux. Um, didn't pay attention. Telnet was no, turned no, no, on. No,
1: no, no, no. I don't think this was installed. I think these are embedded Linux. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Many of these are HP printers. Scroll down to the bottom of that, and you will see the <laughs> the, the enumeration of these. Okay, but so if somebody hacks my printer. It's not the
0: end of the world.
1: Can I? Can you use it as a bot? Yes, he did. Yes. Wow. So he, he says. So he says. We were able to use ifconfig to get the MAC address on most devices. We collected these MAC addresses for some time and identified about 1.2 million unique unprotected devices. The nice thing about MAC a MAC address, address is
0: you could tell who the manufacturer is.
1: Yes, yeah. and it, it's, it doesn't change when the IP address floats right. around. Right. So if these things were like on ISPs floating around, this, this disambiguated them. He says, this number does not include devices that do not have ifconfig. So only the subset of those, and that was 1.2 million, had (laughs) IFConfig, ifconfig utility installed on this Linux machine accessible over port 23 to anyone with a Telnet client. So finishing up under trivia, he said, a lot of devices and services we have seen during our research should never be connected to the public Internet at all. As a rule of thumb, if you believe that, quote, nobody would connect that to the Internet, really nobody, unquote, (laughs) there are at least a 1,000 people who did.
0: HP LaserJet P-2055 series, there's 6,628 of those. LaserJet 4250s, there's 4,678 of those.
1: I don't know, you know, what? Hello? He said, whenever you think, quote, that shouldn't be on the Internet, (laughs) but will probably be found a few times, unquote, It's there are a few hundred thousand of those.
0: I love all these uh, UPnP devices.
1: uh, Oh, my God, I know.
0: Using that UPnP hole, the portable SDK from
1: uh, Intel. Uh He says, like half a million printers or a million webcams, or devices that have root as their root password. Oh, scary. He said, we would also like to mention that building and running a gigantic botnet and then watching it as it scans nothing less than the whole internet at rates of billions of IPs per hour over and over again is really as much fun as it sounds. (laughs) And then finally, under who and why, he said, you may ask yourself who we are and why we did what we did. In reality, we is me. I chose we as a form for this documentation because it's nicer to read, and mentioning myself a thousand times just sounded egotistical. The why is also simple. I did not want to ask myself for the rest of my life how much fun it could have been or if the infrastructure I imagined in my head would have worked as expected. I saw the chance to really work on an Internet scale, command hundreds of thousands of devices with a click of my mouse, port scan and map the whole Internet, in a way nobody had done before, basically have fun with computers and the internet in a way very few people ever will. <laughs> I decided it would be worth my time. Yeah. Now this guy in this paper, which is up on Bitbucket, you, it's linked to from the link I gave, Bitly slash InterScan. He lays out the architecture. This is this is even if somebody copied what he did. But the problem is he was very white hat. He was very careful. He didn't need to push the limits because he had all the willing machines he needed, even if he only used those with lots of RAM and lots of CPU horsepower. He also ran his bot at the lowest possible priority so that it wouldn't interfere with anyone else's traffic and he didn't need you know it to take over. But but Leo, mark my words, I mean, this is, all the hackers know this now, this is going to launch a, a revolution. And it's not good because this is going to be far more fun than, you know, them trying to get people to click on a link in a browser mm. to get some bot loaded into someone's machine that then, you know, lives for a while. There's millions this- of
0: machines just sitting there waiting.
1: Linux wide open, that, yes. Waiting yes. for uh, just saying, come on, come on. I'll Accepting it, a command prompt log on, mm. and then he even here. told
0: people what passwords to try. I mean, he's given uh-huh. the farm has been given away. Yes, completely. Um Although it's so obvious that I can't imagine others have not already, you know, are not aware of this. He took a big chance in in coming public with this. And my strong advice to him is do not boast. Do not go into IRC. Say, yeah, that was me. Do not say Mm -hmm. a word. Go underground, deep, deep underground, because you'll be going to jail for a long, long time as soon as anybody catches you. Uh, Unfortunately, because I don't think he's done anything wrong. But um, now the bad guys can. I know. They all know. And what that means is massive botnets for DDoS attacks, right? That's the primary yes. use of this.
1: Yes, or email spamming. I mean, a- anything where you could use uh, distributed low power machines. Um, in, in well, b- basically botnets. You know, his he really lays it out. He his machines expire themselves. They leave. They leave gracefully. I mean. He, he, it took him six months to build this and test it and deploy it. And he talks about, you know, PHP and Python code and how he set it up. And he had, you know, a web interface that allowed him to control this thing. I mean, the guy had a ball. And um, and he, he a had a, a sort of a... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I would, if oh I, this would be uh, just a kick in the pants. But the bad news is... This is not rocket science. Yeah. This is standard internet technology. Everybody knows how to do this. And the, the revelation that there are this many machines that you can log on to remotely that are unattended. They're, they're in people's closets. They're, they're in people's racks that have been forgotten. They, will, they, I mean, they are sitting there waiting to be taken over. And just count the minutes. I mean, it, we're going to be hearing about this. This is not over this is has been a nice happy little white hat adventure um there's more coming because there's no way this is not going to get leverage i don't know how it get fix how it gets fixed that's the problem is is these are machines that that will never be changed. They will never be secured. You know, we talked about the UPnP problem and how widespread that is and that there are many boxes that are never going to have their universal plug-and-play locked down because people are not coming by, you know, shields up at GRC to scan themselves and, and take action affirmatively. Mm. Um, similarly, these port 23 telnets with, with empty or default logons, those are going to be there forever.
0: Yeah, because and whoever whoever turned that on, whether it's an HP printer, although that's kind of a shocking flaw, uh, clearly didn't pay any attention. They turned on a telnet
1: service, didn't modify the password. You shouldn't have telnet on anyway. But, this, but see, that this can't be 120 million people or 420 million people. No, this it's just a manufacturer. has to be. Yes, it's the manufacturer, and I mean that's the problem. So somebody's Is saying, it, "What's
0: it, the fix?" There's no fix. This exists and will always yeah. exist.
1: It's done. It's out there. It's too late. It's over.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's over, but...
1: Oh, wait. uh, It's over. (laughs) It's over. No. You expect (laughs) to see massive DDoSs uh, all of a sudden? I don't think... Well, okay. We're all... there are already massive DDoSs. They're already botnets. They're just not taking advantage of people's routers. And so now here's a whole nother class of opportunity for... For networks for for malicious networks and and for people to like bounce their traffic a few times I mean you can't do well I don't know I was gonna say you can't do really sophisticated things like tor nodes but maybe depends you can what's on inside that telnet yeah you have enough <clears throat> if there's memory? a full Linux
0: box uh, you could yep. do anything you want yep uh, and I imagine given the millions of available devices there are probably hundreds of thousands of full Linux boxes at the other end of this I don't know why yep. Certainly, you know anybody's at home, and it, almost anybody listening to the show is, has a router, and this isn't going to happen unless the router has Telnet turned on. But I doubt all you it. have to do is
1: go to go, go, to, go Shields to Shields Up. Up. There's You'll no know. test you can you there's no test you can run at GRC that Shields Up that won't tell you if you have port, Telnet port twenty three turned on. It's the first thing I check. Is it's like <laughs> oh my god?
0: Actually, the first thing you check is probably NetBIOS because that's why you made Shields Up.
1: Yeah, I do, and, and and actually, I I greet you by name if you're crazy enough to have NetBIOS <laughs> enabled. Hey, I say Leo, hi you there, Mark. On up. <laughs> Wonder why you and do that, that. That was the original shocker. People would right. come to GRC for the right. first time, and I would know their name, and it was like, "Uh, <laughs> holy crap! How does he know my name?" Wow, this yeah. is interesting. Um, oh, wow. Leo. So everybody listening, you've got to go. Bit.ly slash interscan, read this guy's paper, look at those images. The images are like wallpaper for your desktop. They are gorgeous. And they're very high res. Yes, he's got them in 2200 by 1600 and and higher. And did you see the animated one? There's one you can click on to start the animation where it shows he took snapshots as the earth rotated, and you can see a very dim, whatever they call that, cool sine wave uh, that moves across the, the, the map showing where the sun is lighting the landscape. Um, there's a neat name, I can't think. Of it. it begins with D, maybe? Oh, yeah,
0: the, uh, uh, the, yeah, yeah, the Terminator.
1: Terminator, yes. Yeah. You can see the Terminator uh, slowly move back and forth. And you see the lights, you, you see the, the, the scan change over time. So some of these things are being turned on and off. And they're, like, on during well, the day printers. and off at <laughs> night.
0: <laughs> That's what I find amazing. These things are printers in many cases. So people are saying, oh, well, everybody ought to have a router and turn up." But, But really, these are neglected devices or devices people don't even know have Telnet turned on.
1: The word is appliance. They're, they're appliances. appliances.
0: They're on the Internet direct because if you're behind a router, uh, chances are pretty good it's not exposed. These these are appli- internet appliances like printers that are just sitting on the net for some reason.
1: Internet facing appliances, which is bizarre.
0: But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this animated gif. This is good. The term you can see the Terminator line.
1: Isn't that neat? You did a really
0: <laughs> nice job. Well, you know, he's probably given way too many clues as to his identity. Uh, I so hope
1: you are, whoever you are, hats off to you for a beautiful wow. piece of work, and darn you for. Exposing it, I mean. Well, again,
0: I bet you, well, bad guys I I knew this. This it, isn't that hard to figure out,
1: is uh, it? I guess maybe, maybe they, maybe bad guys were keeping it quiet. That's what I my mean, guess it, would it be. Is entirely, we, 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 okay. But look, Leo, we are always running across things right. that are frightening that no one knew, like the universal plug and play port being open. Is like there they were all open, right. and it took it took H uh, uh, D Moore. To scan the net and find them, I'll
0: tell you and though. You like, know, if you if I look at my server logs, I see uh, pretty much nonstop Telnet bangs on oh, my I know. servers. I
1: know twenty three, mostly is- from China,
0: and so I am. I am pretty much guessing some smart university student in China, or maybe somebody in the military, has figured this one out. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, because I mean, it, Telnet is it, that's the first Can't thing Leo- people try. The nice thing is, there is enough there for everyone to share. <laughs> you got 420 million wow. how, how, many you how greedy are you well it, okay yeah.
0: so uh, the way a DDoS works is you have enough machines pinging a site uh, that the site no matter how much bandwidth it has cannot service them all the bandwidth gets clogged and of course there are companies lots of them that provide DDoS protection by merely widening the pipe but with millions of machines I, what I don't know how many it would take to kind of overrun and the largest possible pipe but uh, it's dishearteningly several, few several hundred thousand would be more than enough right
1: well and and the the, the worst attacks are the uh, are the in protocol attacks a ping is sort of old school and lots of ISPs block them it's it's Well like send a not sin that, though
0: if you send a sin to port uh, port 80
1: you well, can't block that cuz you wouldn't have a website what's worse is send a valid request okay because then the website has to deliver has to a respond. page, yeah. And if it's a if it's a PHP site and it's using computational resources to, to interpret look and look a, how many sites sim- we bring
0: down all the time. Yes,
1: yes. The moment we talk about
0: something, send a thousand people, it's going to bring a site most sites down. Yes. Send a hundred thousand people. I doubt there's any site that can survive. No. No.
1: Well, the good and news the is, is
0: all the gambling sites will be offline during major gambling events. <laughs> I guess the next one is the Indy 500. We'll see if uh come uh, Memorial Day uh
1: you cannot get online. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean it it is really really significant that yeah. that there is this kind of pre- there's this presence of unattended obeying Machines. Now, this
0: guy and, and, already is in deep trouble because what he's done violates every every law known to man. It's, it's you know, federal wire fraud laws of don't allow you to log on to somebody's computer. Even though they leave and, it wide open, you're still not allowed to do that. Why doesn't this guy write a bot that just change just changes the password to some random string on all of these devices? What would stop him from doing that? He's already on these devices.
1: Or just, just shut down, better would be shut, to down, shut down the Telnet. Shut down the Telnet service. Just, you know, edit it. He may not be able to make a permanent change. That's the problem. He may not have to access to... change
0: the RC to, uh, file or whatever, yeah.
1: But he, he can at least could, shut
0: it down he, for now. Of course, the machine's well, turned off and on, then it's going to start up again.
1: And they often do. Uh, he yeah. explains in here... You can see them that, on, that, that, on that map. Yes, that he was seeing machines disappear, that they, they were moving, or he said also some some machines just reboot themselves... Right by by schedule on a schedule every few days just to clean out any debris that they've accumulated so unless he could make permanent changes to the to the non-volatile memory in those machines um th- th- a- a- anything he did would would be temporary all right my point being he's already
0: violated every federal us federal law and probably federal laws in most countries uh might as well go all the way and fix the problem
1: he sounds like a nice guy too he sounds like I mean, a nice guy like- i'm sure he's considering it
0: he, uh, I mean, in many cases, he had root.
1: Yes, a simple. Yes. what uh, he was getting, what he was getting, was full root access. He was he was logging in either with with a blank username and password, or as admin, or as root. That so, gives you right access.
0: Do, I, you know, I he could probably he, fix a few of them. Yeah, maybe a few million.
1: Well, he has the infrastructure in place to do it before anybody else. That's could. what's
0: interesting because. He was able to do this by commandeering these machines to spread the botnet. He could it wasn't all from one PC in his closet.
1: That's why it was a worm. He yeah. built a beautiful <laughs> That's amazing. Linux worm which then propagated just like in a flash across the internet and its goal was to find other bots. And he shows he, he shows how it how it escalates. The first few he like launched a few thousand. They all begin scanning. He partitioned the IPv4 address space. Now that's one other point that he makes that I that I didn't read because um, I didn't go want to read the entire paper verbatim. Anyone can can find it is he mentions that you know this is only possible on IPv4 because we ah. only have Four point three billion IPs, ah. and they can be scanned. When right. you go from a thirty-two bit address to a hundred twenty-eight bit address, everything changes. Good. Let's all go IPv six now. Well, none of those bots are going to. None of those boxes are going right. to. They're just They're happy, printers.
0: Happy. <laughs> and we already know how little these device manufacturers care about fixing their problems. This UPnP, not a-, a word from any router manufacturer.
1: Not a word. Nope. Nope, none, none. I wonder if there's going to be a sudden spike in demand for toner.
0: <laughs> you know, that's what he should just do. Is it the ones that are printers just print a big page that says, "Hey, moron, <laughs> lock down your machine." <laughs> Give him just that's okay. That's all you do. You print a one sheet on every printer that you can get to and say, "Here's what you need to do."
1: And and also, Leo, remember this: there are there are. Infrastructure critical machines. He refers to them in more detail than I did in the paper. Like scada boxes,
0: things like that.
1: Yes, and he's also on routers. And because he is who he is, he is not turning around and looking into the network. He talks about all the tasty machines behind these. these. These are. This is not going to be a hands off policy. For most of the right. hackers on the internet, they're going to get on a box and go, hmm, where am I? Poke around. What machines are connected? What fun can I have? I mean, it is, this is a catastrophe. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Kind I have buried a- the lead, Steve. <laughs> i know well we're not going to get to it this week i I have two things i left i want to share okay uh our friend simon zarafa who uh uh, he tweeted me something that is really cringeworthy he said two bites walk into a bar okay first one the first bite turns to the second and says i think i may have a parody error (laughs) the second one says yes You do look a bit off. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, ow. Yeah. (laughs) I got a really, really nice note uh, from a listener, Richard Curtis, uh, who said, I've written a testimonial, but he didn't know where to send it. So he sent it to my uh, tech support guy, Greg. He said, so the subject is I've written a testimonial, and then his letter, his note starts, but couldn't find anywhere on GRC's or spinrights pages to submit one. So I decided to submit it this way. Please let me know if there's anything else I need to do. He said, just another miracle to add to your enormous collection. I have a Dell Inspiron 1520 laptop running XP Professional SP3. Man after my own heart. He said, uh, in early September 2012, so a few months ago, I got a BSOD, the blue screen of death, on startup, informing me that an essential system file in the boot process was corrupt. I had purchased the computer in 08, so four years previous, so it was out of warranty. I paid Dell customer service $129, seeking their help in getting it up and running. So, okay, $129 to Dell. The best they could give me for the price of admission was to tell me to reinstall the operating system. Like everyone else, I had thousands of pictures and my personal, professional, and financial life on that computer. Like almost everyone else, I didn't observe a regular backup schedule, even though I own two one-terabyte Phantom external hard drives. I wasn't about to do anything as drastic as a system reinstall before I could engage in data recovery but I had previous experience with data recovery and knew it would likely cost me about as much as a new computer. That's true, or a lot more, actually. I switched over to using my wife's brand-new Asus laptop with a Core i7 processor and Win 7 while I pondered my approach to data recovery. Several months went by, and tiring of my monopolizing her new computer, my wife suggested I buy... A new one of my own. Since her ASUS is, I didn't want to pull the trigger. No, I'm sorry. Nice as her ASUS is, I didn't want to pull the trigger on that kind of financial commitment either. So I began scouring the web to find recommendations for user-controlled data recovery. Among several promising programs, Spinrite stood out. I read absolutely everything on the Spinrite website about the program and how it worked. I'm no techie, but it all made sense to me. Impressed by Steve's background in computer hardware, pre-existing the internet, and PCs, his long-term commitment to Spinrite for decades, Spinrite's non-destructive process, the glowing external reviews, the many user testimonials about not just data recovery but the restoration of failing drives, and Spinrite's money-back guarantee and lifetime updates, there was no question about the choice of program. I paid my $89 lifetime license fee, burned Spinrite to CD on my wife's computer, and started it on my non-bootable Dell at 5 a.m. four days ago. It finished its work nine hours later. That is not four days and nine hours, but it only took him nine hours. He didn't write for four days. He says, holding my breath, I started the Dell up and wham, the Windows start screen appeared. It booted flawlessly, and there were all my precious files. I'm writing this message on the Inspiron right now. All the previous warnings of impending doom, such as hanging processes and stack dumps, are gone. Add me to the family of true believers. Spinrite is the most reasonably priced, absolutely essential program that every computer owner owes to him herself to obtain and have on hand to stave off the inevitable drive failures. I will be running it on the Dell, my wife's Asus, and my son's Dell with Vista quarterly to keep them in shape, and I'll back up all my files, I promise. And then he concludes with, by the way, Spinrite found comparatively few bad sectors, so I guess the drive was actually in fairly good shape. And he demonstrates that he really did read everything because he learned the lesson about maintenance, that Spinrite can not only recover, of course, but is really good for long-term maintenance run every few months. So, wow, great testimonial. Thank you, Richard. Isn't that nice? So do you want to save the hash tables for later? We have to. We're kind of out of time. (laughs) Yeah, we will do it week after next. I have tons of really interesting material about the way... They work about who uses them, about how they operate. Uh, it'll make for a great podcast, which, you know, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, we had a great one just now. Uh, really. Yeah, this it, turns out I, to
0: be a pretty important uh, thing. This
1: is very, very important. Yeah. When you learn that the Internet has telnet logonable unattended appliances in the hundreds of millions who that, and remember, I, I will say again, Leo, this is not just for outbound reflected traffic, all of these are in front of somebody's private LAN and they allow admission to that LAN. Yeah, so this, I mean, this is no, this is not good,
0: not good would be an understatement. Yeah, Steve Gibson is at grc.com next week. QA, which means if you go to grc.com/slash feedback, you can ask your question. Steve will pick. Actually, we have leftovers from last week. (laughs) We'll use some leftovers, maybe some fresh. Mix it in, and it'll make a nice casserole. Put some potato chips on the top. Uh, You can also, when you're there, get 16 kilobit audio versions of the show. Transcriptions, too. He does all that just for you, for the bandwidth impaired. For those of you with ample bandwidth, watch live every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. Uh, or download audio or video after the fact. High quality versions of both available at twit.tv/sn for Security Now, or wherever better podcasts and internet broadcasts are stored. Uh, just search for Twit or Security Now, and you'll find it. Um, I guess. Oh, and this would be a good time maybe to go to Shields Up and just make sure <laughs> that you don't have a Telnet port lying open, flapping in the wind.
1: Yeah, I would love to know more about those boxes. The only thing that we didn't get is what are all those? I mean, we know that a bunch of printers. That's crazy. I mean, why does a printer have Telnet at all running? But that's, you know, one of the problems is people tend to leave things in default mode. Even people apparently setting up an infirm- and installing firmware in unattended boxes. I mean port 23 is nuts to have wide open and r- running a Telnet server just like, oh, okay. You know, so these must have been around for a long time and they're going to be around forever. Oh. Uh, yeah. me. I'm sure we'll hear more.
0: <laughs> and uh, this is the show where you learn all about all that stuff and Bitcoin too. Thank you for joining us, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.